Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. started out as an angel investor. You were sort of investing in, in your friends that were coming out of PayPal. Um, I'm curious how you, and you were trying to be first check in. You, I think you were maybe taking board seats, um, but you were, you were sort of putting rounds together. I don't, I don't know if you took board seats. How do you think about sort of how you got started as an angel investor when, when you got started? How do you compare it to how you might do that if you were doing it, you know, in 2020? Sure. So, I mean, the world of angel investing is very different in like 2003, 2003 to 2005 for many reasons. And so I'm not sure, you know, what worked for me would be quite as applicable as it would be today. So first thing was not that many people wanted to be angels. 2003 was still the kind of the byproduct of the nuclear winter in Silicon Valley and the internet bubble exploding. So very few people wanted to invest either professional VCs or amateur VCs, angels wanted to invest in new companies. And just by, by definition, by being interested and willing to invest, you set yourself apart. For that era, like 2003 to roughly 2005. And so we became, like me and some of my PayPal colleagues, became like a magnet for people because we're basically the only people writing checks. And so there wasn't really a choice to come to us. Um, so that's obviously quite different than the landscape today where everybody, you look to your left, you look to your right, everybody's an angel investor, everybody's a solo LP in some fund or something. So um, that was the easiest part was just like, you know, people come to you because they need money. But once 2005 kind of kicked in, there was a proliferation of angel investments in the beginning of these seed funds. And they were competitive back then, meaning like seed funds were basically substitutes for angels and vice versa. So differentiating is pretty important. Um, the differentiation that I used initially was I'd be a pretty active angel investor, meaning I would effectively take the role of a VC, meaning active support for the company whether explicitly or implicitly joining a board of directors and hand-holding the founder through the financing process for their Series A, basically setting up key benchmarks um, that would be important for Series A investors, understanding the Series A investor VC landscape, which the world was less transparent than, you know, the, what fund was what, who was who. It was very hard to parse. I mean, you could search around for all these websites, but they didn't make any sense. So, you know, what's the difference between Mayfield and Sequoia or who... Should I need a benchmark? Helping founders understand that just as a byproduct of experience it was very, very valuable back then. I'm not sure it would be as valuable right now. Um, so that's how I sort of got to start. And then the important thing as an early angel was to get some traction, meaning to have some perceived to be successful investments because it does become somewhat self-fulfilling. VCs definitely want to meet companies uh, that you're involved in once they know that you have an eye, you know, sort of eye for the wall and an eye for things that might be interesting. If your first 10 investments aren't very interesting, then when you try to introduce, uh, you know, company X, Y, or Z to VCY, you're not so interested and you're not immediately responsive. Um, so you kind of have to get some degree of credibility fairly fast because it becomes recursive. Same thing. Founders want to go to people that not only they believe will write a chat, but that they believe have influence downstream. So it's not this option value investing of I'm going to write 20 checks and then figure this out and I'm going to, you know, not worry too much about this stuff. I, don't, I think it kind of backfires. I think it's very hard to have a, a bad first batch of investments of call the first 10 and then all of a sudden start succeeding as an angel investor. In fact, actually, truthfully, all my best investments, unfortunately, embarrassingly enough, uh, three of the four, three of the five best investments that I ever made were all done in the first year I ever angel invested. <laughs> so I started in 2005. I think like the original investments in 2005 were like, the first three were like YouTube, Palantir, or some other Yelp and LinkedIn. Um, so it's all downhill from there. So I, I should have just totally quit and like play basketball or something. But, uh, <laughs> The reason why that was possible, though, and it's worth, it wasn't like totally accidental, wasn't totally conscious either, was all of those companies were founded by people I already knew. Every single one of them was founded by a colleague, a former colleague of mine. So I knew them quite well. So all I was doing is investing in former colleagues and cherry picking to some extent 
the best of my former colleagues. So I didn't have to know much about business or what companies worked or not. Maybe, you know, some degree of a filter there. But it wasn't like I was suddenly like amazing at assessing random people off the street that were founders and, you know, just nailed uh, the first few. It was like every single one of them was a former colleague. Now that led to more people approaching you. And that actually is not necessarily a good thing either because then there's another problem. When you're not well known as an angel investor or a VC, the people who approach you might be pretty good. Once you get a brand, then you get significant adverse selection. <laughs> and then you've got to learn how to like filter. Like, oh my God, I just got a hundred emails. I'm not going to meet, especially an angel investor. There's no way I'm meeting with a hundred founders this week. So I have to narrow. And what I've actually found is the hardest part is actually narrowing. So uh, my friend Roloff Bota, who like runs Sequoia and was my our, our CFO of PayPal, told me this in 2003. He became a VC, and I remember talking to having coffee with him actually six months after he started. I said, "What's the what's the hardest part of the job?" He said, it's "Deciding who to take a first meeting with," because everything sort of derives from that. So if you kick people out of your process in the first meeting, you just lost the opportunity to invest in that company, basically permanently, perhaps. And then if you take that first meeting, there's a set of processes and time that goes into that, not just the initial meeting, but diligencing, sharing with the team. It creates a sort of momentum to itself. And I've actually reverse engineered the, almost all the serious mistakes I've made as an investor, whether as an angel or a professional, is basically at the meeting level of should I take this meeting or not, not post-meeting. The number of regrets I have post-meeting over 20, roughly 20 years is like less than five. But the number of meetings I should have taken that I, that I was specifically asked to take but didn't and declined that turned into be very successful companies is like this. So, you know, it's like maybe not an order magnitude greater, but right. close to an order magnitude greater of mistakes of filtering. And are, are there any sort of common mistakes you made when, when you, you know, filtered incorrectly or any sort of learnings you've had about how to, how to filter better on the first meeting or, or what advice would you give there? I still have it. Truth is, I still haven't figured it out because you cannot take all meetings. Like there's, you know, Zoom is actually making, this remote working is making it a little bit easier to take an initial meeting because in the real world, at least from my, in my experience, it was difficult to schedule a meeting successfully for less than an hour. So any yes basically turned into a minimum viable hour. And therefore, there's only so many of those hours you can, you know, commit to. If you're an executive, you have a full-time job and you're angel investing outside, very scarce number of slots per week. Um, so I was pretty strict about only meeting founders, for example, on weekends, uh, while I was, you know, running things. And so there's only so many hours and slots you can make available. As a VC, in theory, you have a lot, many more slots, but you also have prior commitments, prior, prior investments, have board seats, you know, one-on-ones with founders, et cetera. So there's only so many hours in a day. And I've not gotten any better, truthfully, uh, filtering. I think, I'm still thinking I'm making the mistakes on the filter, not on the uh, initial meeting. I probably still, maybe, if you hire the right principles, you know, so you can have colleagues. And if you can't take all meetings or can't filter correctly, you can certainly, you know, send them to other people. But then it requires them to have judgment about not missing things. But that kind of can work. If you, you know, maybe that cuts the mistakes in half. Perhaps we'll see. But I, I still do sleep over the times I say no. I mean, like for example, be tangible. I dec- even though I knew, I knew the founders of Airtable well. I declined a meeting on that. I declined a meeting on Coinbase. Declined a meeting on Pinterest, or sort of pseudo declined a meeting on Pinterest. That was a little more complicated. There's at least one other like very successful company that basically didn't want to meet. And even a couple I got close to declining that I actually wound up taking and actually turned out to be pretty good. So my filter from an email introduction just isn't very strong. But part of it is because I don't know what you're supposed to filter on, truthfully. A lot of great companies are founded by people who are off central casting. And at the end of the day, any filter is going to use some heuristic to decide what to prioritize. But if you decide based on any historical success, I, I think you miss many of the best stuff, many of the best things. And um, it's very different than the interviewing process as an executive when you're recruiting employees. I think it's pretty easy to filter LinkedIn resumes. Actually, people who watch me do this, you know, I, I, I can take a LinkedIn stock of, used to be printed, but LinkedIn profiles and quickly sort to yes, no, maybe in interviews like this and with very limited mistakes. Because I think you're, you're, you're looking for different things and different signals. But yeah, I, I still haven't figured this out. 
Yeah. And are, are there certain non-obvious things that you look for in a LinkedIn profile or that rub you the wrong way that people might benefit from? Yeah, I mean, we're going to blog a little bit more about this or substack about it, I guess. Cool. But fundamentally, um, the things you're looking for in a LinkedIn profile are increasing increasing scope of responsibilities. Whether you call them promotions or not, they don't have to be explicit promotions. But people who are ambitious and talented tend to have their uh, scope of responsibilities expanded very rapidly, especially if it's in a pool, a dense pool of talent. So yeah. And you know what the pool of talent's like. Like, so if you're, you're familiar with the company and the caliber of people, and then you see someone accelerating um, in terms of challenge responsibilities titles, that's a really good signal. There's opposite negative signals that are they're somewhat the inverse, but that's the number one signal. And people who are going to change the world just don't sit around very easily. They get very uncomfortable sitting around. And they're not they're not easily classified. Um, so um, you, you can kind of look for that uh, on the founder side. On the employee side, you're looking for, you know, also some degree of skill set or experience overlap with your core issues, right? There's a curriculum sort of training for what are my core problems and what's the right DNA, not necessarily the right exact experience, but what's the right DNA to solve my core problem? And that's different than founders, but of course you can build a company that's really interesting in so many different ways and so many different verticals. You can't really apply that. It's also, as an investor, you want to take more risk than, than recruiting. I mean, I don't believe in zero defect recruiting where you don't ever have mistakes. I think you're way too cautious, too homogenized, and too conservative if you don't make hiring mistakes. But at the end of the day, as an angel investor, certainly as a VC, you want to have some companies that fail. So you're, not, you're looking for extreme outliers on the investing side, you're looking for high, uh, let's call it a standard deviation outliers, but not the extreme outliers necessarily as executives or you know individual contributors. So you are looking for further out of the tail for founders, um, which means you're going to you know make more mistakes, but that's fine. Um, I just need a, you know batting average. This is baseball. I need to hit thirty to forty percent, and then I'm very very happy by any standard. And, you know, if I try to hit 100%, I'm actually going to be very unhappy for the most part. It's really extremely difficult to be both successful and try to have a high win rate as an earlier stage investor, which basically almost all angels are earlier stage investors. Yeah. And, and, and I want to go deeper on the hit rate stuff. I want to talk about sort of overall sort of like portfolio allocation. A lot of people here, you know, people are in different financial positions. They're wondering what sort of what percentage of their net worth they should dedicate to, to angel investing. And then of that uh, amount, how sort of diversified versus concentrated should they be in their angel investing? What advice do you have to sort of both of those questions in terms of like overall, um, how, do you, how do you think about sort of wealth allocation and, and diversification and what percentage angel investment plays relative to other, other parts? Uh, and then let's get into angel, you know, diversification within angel investing. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, people have different goals and ambitions for why they become an angel investor, and they're not just purely financial. Sometimes it's not financial at all. So you can be an angel investor because you want to learn about the world, and one way of learning about the world is getting involved in interesting things, you know, in a very uh, broad sense. And so that may be a non-financial, you know, sort of goal. You may want to propel certain ideas forward. You have, you know, ideological interests. In the world should be more like X. Well, one great way to do that is to help fund it. You may want to propel people forward. There may be people, you know, you think highly of and, you know, want to help boost them. All of these are non-financial objectives. Then there's the financial objective of I want to produce a return for myself. And then on top of that financial distinct from that one is actually I might want to do angel investing as either an experiment for myself to see whether I want to be a professional investor or for developing a track record that convinces other people I should be a professional investor. All of those are very different. And so depending on what my initial goal was, I might, you know, allocate different size checks, think about reserves or non-reserves. You know, there's a bunch of variables there. I mean, when I first started down the path of angel investing, it wasn't designed to make money. I'll put it that way. Like, that was not my goal. My goal was partially uh, to find interesting new companies, and the best way to find them was to get involved really early. And then, you know, maybe I, I was thinking about doubling down myself, like I would join a company. Exact fact, what happened? I went and joined LinkedIn um, as a byproduct of being an investor. You know, I paid very careful attention to how the company was doing when it was starting 
Tim Flack, what skills they needed, you know, what was going right, what was going wrong. Um, so partially job search. Secondly, uh, I wanted to, I knew I did want to at some point be a VC. Um, so I was at least thinking about, you know, how would angel investing uh, relate to my ability to secure, you know, a good VC opportunity when I wanted it. I wasn't really thinking this was going to produce money for me, for me um, when I started. It was only, well, you know, arguably a minimum two years later that it started producing some returns. And I certainly wasn't unhappy about that, but it, it definitely, I thought of it more as like paying tuition to do all these other things, not necessarily from an ROI standpoint. Yeah. But let's say hypothetically, just to grill on a little bit, like if some of these people are saying, hey, I'm going to allocate, you know, $500,000 a year, you know, to, to, for some people it might be a lot, for some people it might be a little, for, for angel investing, is like a simple thing, like 10 deals a year, 50K, like would you not think about it that way? Or how would you sort of recommend that people... Think about, and this is for the general use case. You know, it's largely financially driven. Um, well, again, I, I do think that you have to be careful that your first X batch does somewhat become self-fulfilling about the quality and caliber of investments. So, in a strategy where you're doing, you know, prescribed number per year, that assumes that the first year, second year, don't dictate what happens later. And I think they do. I think they're not independent variables. Um, to be strict. And, and you know, also there's some batching in terms of quality of entrepreneurs and founding companies. There's a bit of this kind of wine vintage thing of like companies founded in 2003, four, maybe better than set founded in six and seven. So you're tapping into a, fer- uh, you know, more, more fertile like crowd sort of. So I wouldn't prescribe per year. I probably would set a budget of, over the next, call it three years, or whatever my goals are, I want to see, you know, is this working to achieve my goals? So do I enjoy it? Even if you have financial goals in mind, do I enjoy this? Do I like meeting with founders? Do I like the process? Blah, blah, blah. Number two, you know, do, do, is there, are there hallmarks that at least on some occasions, my instincts, and that's really what they are, are right, um, and that these might turn into interesting companies because one or two years, measuring one or two years later, isn't going to be like a slam dunk of like guaranteeing financial returns. But you should know whether you're on the right or wrong track. Um, and so you should see a spark of at least, yeah, you know, on occasion, I seem to be tapping into some interesting things and these companies have high potential. And then also, insofar as you have non-financial objectives, like is this helping me get from point one to point two? So I knew pretty quickly thereafter that I at least spotted this LinkedIn opportunity by being an angel investor. Same thing happened when I invested in YouTube. It became pretty apparent to me that I would be a good fit personally for what the company needed and that the company was going to do phenomenally well. And then if I wanted to jump into like a CEO position, there was a great opportunity there. That said, it happened about a year after I joined LinkedIn, so you can't quite switch jobs that fast. So the theory was right about using angel investing as a you know, platform and uh, perspective and personal intake companies uh, for potential full-time you know, roles. But realistically, you can only kind of have one full-time role at a time. So it didn't quite work out the way. I, I sort of forgot about that part um, when I was planning this strategy. But um, I would probably just take a budget and, and, and let it float over a reasonable amount of time, probably no longer than three years, probably not less than one. Yeah. Is there an overall Kiefer Boy theory of, uh, you know, uh, personal, uh, you know, uh, wealth allocation? Yeah. I mean, I follow what an uh, investment advisor would call a barbell strategy. Um, it's a little different now as a VC, but while I was executive, so for 13 years, you know, I was an executive in these kind of high growth companies. And while I was angel investing, I followed what I call a barbell strategy, which is basically my job running companies with super high rents. Like I joined... PayPal, LinkedIn, Slide, which no one remembers, Square, et cetera, when there's basically nothing working at those companies. Um, sort of no revenue working, at least no business metrics working. And um, so that what I did for a living is what I had to explain this to my wealth advisor is super high risk. Like my options are basically worth zero when I join all these companies. So what I want to do with any wealth I have is preserve it. So put it in the most conservative places possible. Because what I do professionally is designed to create wealth. I don't want like some random Goldman Sachs like an investment advisor trying to create wealth for me. 
Um, There's an old blog post I really liked about this topic um, that that I recently retweeted because he's been doing very well recently and I I enjoy working with him by Mike Spicer. So Spicer wrote this great blog post in, I think it's 2007, but plus or minus 2007, about the flaws of diversification. And the basic thesis is actually, it's got some rigorous math behind it, but it's counterintuitive to almost everything most people are taught, which is diversify, diversify, diversify. And his whole point is if you have asymmetric ability to do X, you should never be diversified. And that was, you know, very instructive to me. It's like, okay, I have asymmetric ability to create companies. I don't want to be diversified at all in that stuff. But I don't have asymmetric ability to trade public equities or municipal bonds. So I want to be very highly diversified and very safe and then take all my risk on angel investing and all my professional endeavors. Um, when you become a VC, a professional VC in a large fund, it's a little bit different because you have a kind of a smoothing function. Like, you know, we invest over at KV like 10 years, the founders fund like six years, and we just repeat each fund as a new three-year cycle. And so if you're successful, the income side kind of, the, the gains kind of blend in over a very long period of time. So you don't quite have this spiky result and you have a portfolio. So, you know, in founding and KB, we typically have 50 to 100 companies in a fund. Founders funds a little more concentrated, but call it 30 to 40 companies. So you're kind of creating a smoothing function by definition. So I'm no longer as extreme with, you know, sort of my decisions, but I'm also no longer taking super high risk bets. Like being a VC, being a GP in a fund, large fund is not a super high risk bet. Like that's not like starting a company at all. Yep. Totally. So, so it seems that there's like three paths. There's, there's sort of like start a company or, or you know, be an opera exec and angel on the side. You, you, uh, then there's, you know, be a full-time VC. And then there's also like be a full-time VC and incubate, you know, open door or incubate a company. Um, and a lot of people here are sort of thinking about, which of those three paths they, they should or could ha- potentially do. I'm, I'm curious, what do you think separates sort of like people who should, you know, be an exec and angel invest versus people who should be a full-time VC versus how do you pull off even the be a full-time VC and incubate uh, on the side? What sort of in- insight do you have there? Well, let's start on the two more traditional polls. Let's say, do you want to be an executive and angel invest? That's a skill, a discipline, you know, running teams, building things. And if you're proficient at it, it's a great option. Professional investing as a VC is, is a very different exercise. And there's not that much confidence between these two things. It's like playing two different sports. Like it's called baseball, basketball. There are a couple handful of people who've been able to play both at a high level, but they're very, very different. They tap into very different skills, even though they're generally in the same domain, like professional sports, you know, et cetera, entertainment more broadly, just like Silicon Valley has VCs and entrepreneurs. Um, to be a VC, the things that are most interesting are, if you're intellectually curious, it's the greatest job in the world. Because you basically get paid every day to learn new things about the world. And there's almost no roles left where you get compensated for learning new things. Um, academic academia is basically narrow, narrow, narrow. And journalism, we don't get compensated. So basically, there's nothing left except being a VC if you're intellectually curious. I, I think it's wonderful, but not everybody's intellectually curious. Many people like to master domains. And that's not what a VC does. Second thing is if you like the role of being almost like a psychologist, it's a great job. So basically I sit down and work with founders, you know, basically every day, no longer in person as much, but fundamentally sit down and basically say, you know, some version of tell me your problems and then ask a bunch of questions and it's just repeat. So if you like that kind of dialogue and you think you can advise or counsel people through that kind of dialogue, it's a very good role. If you like to make decisions, it's a terrible role. Like there's very few decisions I make at all I need for, except, you know, do I want to offer a church? That's about the only decision really I make versus an executive, you're making decisions basically every day, sometimes every hour. And so it's not an executive brain job. It's, it's very different. So, I think most people have a more natural fit in terms of psychological happiness, let alone skill in one of these two areas, and they should choose wisely. And then there's byproducts of that. The stress associated with being VC is significantly different. Like there's not a lot of short-term stress in this job. There's much more short-term stress 
disruption to your family, disruption to your vacation, whatever the case may be, versus VC is a more predictable life, lifestyle and more compatible with certain things. That said, you don't have the ownership mentality. It's never your baby. And so the downside to the lack of stress is it's never mine and it's never my decision, which leads to predictability and sleeping better. But sometimes people want the adrenaline of the stress and the ownership and having it be their baby. So I think most people should make a decision of which one's more attractive and which one they think would be better or more proficient at. There may be some people that can be equally happy, equally talented at both. But I actually think that's more like a quarter case than like a common. So I think that would filter basically which one are you better at, which one are popular at, and do that. If you're now to answer your last bracket, you know, caveat to your last or bracket to your question, there are some set of VCs I think would be very good at incubating companies. It's very time consuming. So it's basically going to crowd out a reasonable number of investments. So you're going to be less of a diversification, first by investor, more of a concentrated investor. For some set of people, it can work very, very well, but you, you have to recognize the trade-off there and say, I have so much conviction about this opportunity that I'm willing to forego all three, four, five other material investments. Yeah. Is it fair to say that, um, like, if being an exec, uh, while Angel on the side is like, you know, 90, 10 operating to investing and being a VC, full-time VC is like 100 to zero, you know, investing to, to operating, that sort of your position is, is it like, 70 30 or 50 50 or how do you sort of like the the operating brain executive brain versus the sort of um investing brain by chart i don't think you want to apply almost any of your operating brain as a vc um where it can be helpful is post investment insofar as a founder confronts a set of challenges and wants your advice it may be the case that you've confronted that problem or set of problems before and you can walk through the analysis of Here's a conceptual framework for thinking about the trade-offs, or here's what I did and here's what went wrong, so the grass isn't quite greener, or here's the person I would go to for expertise in this particular set of challenges. So the byproduct of having been the operating executive before is you may be able to give better advice and counsel, but that's post-investment. It's probably not that useful for finding new investments, maybe be negative, and it's maybe helpful in closing investments, that's a little bit more debatable. I think there is some preference for founders to work with people who've been successful as founders, executives before, but it's, it's more at the margin. Some of the best investors ever definitely were not, you know, founders or executives. Think Mike Moore, it's Peter Fenton as examples, Bill Burley, um, all who are, you know, phenomenally great PCs. Uh, so you clearly can be super successful, but it is, it is valuable. It's just, you have to find if you find different values to leverage if you haven't had that experience. Yeah. I, I want to segue into, into a couple other, a couple other topics. First, first is, is just the topic of the day. It, it's the, it's the Coinbase post. I'm, I'm curious for what you think the significance of, of, of that is, what, what that sort of means for, for, for others or just sort of the industry large. And then just given your context of being operated in companies for the last couple of decades, how you sort of think about it. Well, I think the key, maybe put it in a different framework, is the key, Eric talks a lot um, internally and sometimes on the internet about values. And values are only meaningful when they say what you're not going to do. Like values that everybody who subscribes to are actually completely useless. So the only values that matter when you walk around an office are ones that allow the company to make decisions because they create a filter and a byproduct, you know, a binary sort. So the best thing about something like this is it makes it very clear that if you have certain views about the world and how companies operate, great. There's plenty of companies for you. Don't go to Coinbase. Conversely, people who are frustrated with, you know, all of the distractions, I'm trying not to be too biased here, but all the distractions associated with Facebook, Google, et cetera, can go find companies that are, you know, using Brian's terminology, mission oriented, but basically they aren't going to allow political debates about general societal issues to trump the day-to-day activity. And so that's great because then you can have self-selection to, you know, what companies are best fit for me and what companies and what kind of employees do I want. And, it, you know, there are plenty of options for everybody in the world right now. So I think that that's healthy. Um, what's not healthy is 
when people either feel deceived, like I thought the job wouldn't tell this or wouldn't tell that. And then, you know, you kind of have this whiplash experience. Um, but I think it'll be very positive in terms of companies can have their own base. We did this at Founders Club. We have an offsite for CEOs, which we usually do annually, which we obviously didn't do this year. But last September of 2019, we had like this offsite for our CEOs, many of our CEOs. And um, what, we had two debates on the first night, you know, sort of people working in the groups and had debates. And um, I want to tell you what the second one was, because that would be very distracting. But the first <laughs> debate was about this topic, you know, should a CEO ever take positions on policy issues that aren't directly related to the core business of the company? And after like an hour of debate, you can imagine like the various people that were there debating, it came out to be about 85% in the sort of Coinbase camp. And then a small minority um, were persuaded, but that it was, it was a very active dialogue and debate about it. Um, so I think in any event, um, I think it's helpful to be clarifying about what your company stands for, what kind of people you want, how do you do your work? Just like there's other dimensions to this that are not all politicized. Like so, for example, some companies make decisions on the basis of metrics, and some make them on the basis of let's say vision or design. You want to be clear about that because that becomes self-fulfilling and you don't want to hire bottom-up driven, empirical, numbers-driven uh, decision makers for a company that wants to be design-driven and vice versa. So I think this is just one dimension to having crisp, powerful values. Yeah. Are, are there any other examples that come to mind in your portfolio or otherwise of, uh, of sort of value of what a company you know is not doing and is explicit about that could be you know insightful? Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, another very common one are, like, the culture of perks, right? Like, many of our companies do not, in fact, offer lunches, you know, I mean, pre-COVID, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, the Amazon and Apple style, which is you don't get any perks, basically, um, versus the Google, Facebook, feed people, give them perks, toys, etc. You can build, obviously, just by the examples I just used, you can clearly build a large, successful company in either of those models. But I think it's important to have a clear view as a founder which one you want to embrace and not switching back and forth. I think there is a lot of pain and sort of unnecessary friction in switching models. I think there are different types of companies that are better suited for one of those two models, actually. But fundamentally, I think that's like the value. It's just like we either focus on every last basis point of cost and if it doesn't improve ROI of the business, we don't spend it unless there's a, like, a true like business case for this. Or part of our job is keeping employees happy, motivated, versus going to other places, and that includes this full compensation package, which includes some of these benefits. Yeah, yeah no, no, totally. I mean, segueing a, a little bit, uh, we're talking about Coinbase. Are you likely to make uh, crypto investments in the next like year or two, or where within crypto? Are you are you excited uh, if at all? Where do you think sort of you know underhyped or, or overhyped? No, uh, at Founders Fund we have a strong Bitcoin maximalist position. So for several funds now, we bought Bitcoin directly, and we've been quite successful with that. And I think that's our current strategy. As for a variety of reasons, we think we can get all the alpha in Bitcoin directly. Uh, we think that that's the best investment. And we're open to new things. I mean, founders could pitch us with new ideas. As I said, you know, we're a founder-driven, I'm sorry, a founder-driven investor. So if a founder walks in and wants to teach me about the future and they convince us to change our mind, we're open-minded to that. But we have a pretty strong internal hypothesis that has proven to be quite successful so far. Um, so it takes somebody reorienting our brains and, you know, into a new paradigm, really. Yeah. So a couple questions on sort of uh, pricing. One, one is, where do you think we are in terms of you know, vintage for, for various investment levels? Yeah, are, are investments too uh, expensive now? And also, like, how disciplined were you on price as, a, as an angel investor versus, uh, versus as a VC? Or how did you approach it differently? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, I think partially when I was growing up as an angel, one didn't have to be super disciplined on price because everything was so cheap. You know, when I invested in Airbnb, I think this is public, I think the post money was $3.5 million. And when I invested in, uh, let's say the series, the series A for LinkedIn was at either 10 or 12 posts. So to some extent, because of where the market values were at the time, 
if you were disciplined or not disciplined, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, when I invested in YouTube, I can't even remember what the price was, but four, three, four million, maybe rolling it in the note into a series A, maybe it's like a 12 post, something like that. So, you know, just the market was very different. Right now, I don't know if that would work. Um, there's definitely people who follow the strategy, and I'm going to be very price insensitive. And I'm going to get some big logos associated with me as an angel or even me as VC. And then parlay that into earlier stage companies where I'm more focused on price. So first generation, go out and find the coolest companies I can find, figure out what it takes to be an investor and not worry about it. Set up phase two, which is I'm going to go really compete now that I have a track record. Most people don't know how to process the logos. And so now I can be much more disciplined and more of a price setter rather than a price taker. It depends a little bit also on the check size, given your financial you know, goals and net worth, truthfully. The smaller the check you write, the harder it is to set price, just by definition, right? Like if you're going to write a $25,000 check, pricing around is probably a fool's errand. So you're kind of in or out in some ways. Someone else is going to set the price, the market, or you know, one bigger investor. Whereas if you're writing, let's say, a 100K check or above, you may actually be able to set the price. Um, and so then being disciplined or thinking about valuations, how much the matter to go, um, is, is more, more of an intellectually interesting exercise. Um, whereas it's not, a, it's not a practical consideration of a 25K check. Um, so it also doesn't matter as much. Um, and you want people to follow you. So even if you're writing, let's say, a 100K check, even if that's only a small fraction of the total round, the perception that people think you know what you're doing in terms of pricing evaluation will allow people to more easily follow your, your pseudo lead, leading quotes basically, without barfing. <laughs> um, so one of the features, and this was important as, as an angel, um, let's call it 2007 to 10, if I agree to a price with a founder, the founder can then parlay that into a simple yes or no decision from other investors and just saying, Keith agreed to this price. People thought it was credible enough that they may or may not want to invest, but that the pricing was plus or minus good enough. Um, and that, that, was, that was valuable. There's some founders who have used that occasionally. Wow, one of my friends who's a founder um, immediately parlayed my agreement to double his valuation into raising from a bunch of other people without really telling me he was doing that. And I only found out about it like, Five years later, when he sold the company, <laughs> um, but uh, so people, you know, occasionally would have fun with uh, using your brand a little bit. But it, it is important that people believe that the value. You don't want everybody second guessing your valuation to some extent if you're going to pseudo lead and price something. As a VC, you know, it's a massive debate. I started like everybody does, I think, in the business and sort of thinking price mattered a great deal. I think the way maybe I reconcile a couple different views on this is there's probably like zones and they're, they're broad zones, but as long as you're in these zones, the price really doesn't matter. So let's say for a very early stage company, low end, 6 million, high end called 20 million, let's say post. If the company is very successful, that, that zone is going to work out phenomenally well for everybody involved. Then you have the like sub called sub 40, maybe these days sub $50 million zone. Then you have another sub 100. The details of where you are in those zones don't change the fundamental economics of risk forward. And I think you can get caught in, you know, I'd be in at 70 posts, but not 80. And that's probably incorrect. Whereas in at 70 posts, but not in at 100 posts, maybe a material strategy difference over time. Or in at 50 posts, not 100 posts definitely has material consequences. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, the way I now try to think about it is like more what's the risk reward equation and the price, the valuation is giving me more, call it non-empirical indications of the risk reward equation I'm saying yes to. Yeah. I actually think a lot more about dollar. Well, this is the difference between maybe KB and founders fund. At KB, I would think more about the dollars I was investing. Um, it's like a price. Like, so think of it as poker. 
of each time you invest, you're learning more about the company, about the market, about the founder. And what's the price of each incremental card? And sometimes for one card, you learn a lot. Like in a short period of time, you learn a ton. And then the next card can be a lot of money, but you don't learn that much more. So we would look at it about like information and content per dollar. Um, and I think that's a reasonable way to do this. It's somewhat different than valuation. It's just like for this much money, I learned this much information about whether I'm on the right track. And that can be very smart. And we use, we do use that prism, but not as an exclusive prism at Founders Fund, but it's a relevant way to frame, like, should we invest in this round or wait for the next round? Do you have a take? Uh, do you value ownership more so than you think about multiples or equally or, or one or the other? As at KV, we thought almost exclusively in terms of ownership. Um, at Founders Fund, we rarely think in terms of ownership. We think much more in terms of dollars. Yeah. So you've chosen to join, you know, and run two different funds. You know, in 2020, it's easier than ever to start a fund. How do you recommend people think about the trade-offs between starting or joining, you know, a fund in 2020, even if you know the one that they start might be, you know, 10x, you know, smaller than the one that they could join or more? Well, I think there's a couple of folders. One is do you, the most important one to me is do you want to work with other people. At the end of the day, the reason why I think was it, the easiest thing in the world for me would have been to continue to be angel invest and make money. Because like, once you establish, you know, this kind of a cursive loop, it's actually pretty easy to invest in clearly high caliber companies. But I wanted to work with people and being an angel doesn't allow you to work with people. Like I wanted colleagues, teammates, and partners. Um, so that just meant by definition, you know, I was going to go in a different world because I just wouldn't be happy decide whether it be like economically successful. Then in the fund size, if you say, okay, I'm going to work with colleagues, I'm going to create an institution to work with people. The difference on funds is like basically your ability to have impact in the company's trajectory. There's this fund size where you may help propel something, but truthfully, you can't really impact the company. You're just not adding enough rocket fuel. Um, so I wanted to think that more often than not, what I did mattered and had consequence, not that I was just a financier. And to do that, I think you need to be able to commit millions of dollars to a company and a minimum dose. And as an angel, that's very expensive, especially if you're going to do it every few years, like writing million dollar checks. There's a reason why even like, you know, the billionaires who do angel investment don't typically write very big checks. Is it adds up really, really fast if you're writing significant checks constantly, multiple times a year, and the money doesn't come back to you for a decade. So um, the fund is a great structure for having influence and being able to propel ideas forward that need a minimum dose of capital. Think like Open Door. So there is no way to validate whether Open Door could be achieved or successfully or not uh, with less than at least $10 million of capital. That is the absolute minimum viable amount. You can try cutting it a billion different ways, but there's just no way to do it for less than $10 million. Um, you could have tried 5 million of equity and 5 million of debt, maybe, but the better way to do it was at least 10 million of equity and at least 10 million of debt. And so there's ideas like that, that being a professional VC allows you to give people the opportunity to chase their dream. And I wanted to be able to do that. Um, so I think the fund size dictates a little bit how much impact you have and what kinds of impact you can have. And so I wanted to be affiliated with a larger fund where I felt like my conviction alone could give this entrepreneur or this vision a shot. Um, and so that was very important to me. Can you scale a smaller fund into a larger one? Absolutely. Can you recruit people, start as a solo, you know, VC uh, and add people to your team to get that psychological satisfaction? Probably. So I think you can, it's not like they're so binary. There's probably a hybrid strategy where you start one way and evolve into the other. But uh, for me, it's very important to be working with people. I actually wanted to work with partners too. Um, I like having a debate with colleagues uh, about, I think the right colleagues make you sharper. Like I pointed out, you know, some of the failures or missing things, the right colleagues, you know, might've taken some of those meetings or if I was going to pass on something, maybe they would talk me into it or vice versa. So I like having some stereos around, even if it's my decision finally what to do. Um, so I wanted to be in a place where that would be true. Yeah. How do you think about your use of of Twitter? Is, is it sort of 
and like what is it sort of just like following interests and instincts is the idea of like a strategy sort of an oxymoron or how, how have you sort of like th- thought about your use of twitter well so i started twitter originally when i was getting ready to join square <laughs> i was like oh shit <laughs> um no i mean i actually i did i had a twitter account before that and i used it lightly one of my engineering managers at Sly was addicted to Twitter when it first launched and I kind of played around with it a bit um, because of his like insistence. He's one of those engineering managers who just will never stop. You know, the, the type of engineer manager they when they have, you know, a crusade to speak about every day until you finally relent. Um, so I finally relented just to shut Tyler up. Um, but in any event, um, it did, uh, like at Square, when we'd hire employees, when Jack would introduce you to the company, you have your photo and then your Twitter handle. So it's sort of put a premium on using your Twitter account. I, I use Twitter for a couple different purposes, actually. So obviously, I like to disseminate information about our startups and our founders. I have a reasonable number of people that follow me, and I can help, you know, recruiting, media attention, etc. So just being able to be helpful. Uh, secondly, obviously, I like to share information. There's, like, views about how the company and stuff. It's a good broadcast mechanism for that. And that does create some, you know, inbound deal flow. There are definitely people who reach out to me or the founders fund because of stuff they've read, either through like, you know, one of my colleagues, Mike Solana, um, or, you know, something about our perspective on the world. We have sort of a brand and we want to use channels to communicate the brand. Um, third, though, that's different, um, and it didn't really happen until probably, I don't know, I passed at least 20,000 followers, maybe 50,000. I was like, look, I have this platform, I have an audience, there's things I believe about the world, I feel like I'm negligent as a citizen of the world if I don't use my audience to proselytize on occasion, and maybe I proselytize too much sometimes, um, so it's like, how much is it like business related versus proselytization, and you know, if you, I, I used to tweet a lot about sports, and that would drive a lot of people crazy, but we, we <laughs> thrill people. I once did this poll where it's like, what mix going into one year, like I did one of those polls going into the new year on January 1st, like what mix of sports, politics, and like the, you know startup stuff do you want? And it was like roughly a third, a third, a third. But you know, like the sports stuff, I've, I've toned down a bit because I definitely you know I had a, a loyal 10, 15 percent audience of sports followers, but it would just infuriate the Patrick Collins of the world. Um, <laughs> you know, like John and Patrick would be like, "Oh my god, here comes sports ball again." Um, <laughs> Amazing. So you don't see that, but I'm pretty rare on the sports content these days. Yeah. One one thing I I appreciate about your Twitter that I don't have the courage to do is to correct people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I took on this project of like, uh, certainly didn't do this while I was running a company, but uh, for the most part, I would correct things that were false or defamatory about Square plus Square. Um, because there'd be people who were always critical of the company, and I was just like, no, you're not getting away with this. There's no reason to <laughs> how we do sweet false things about the company. Uh, because that stuff becomes somewhat self-fulfilling, right? Like other people read it, they Google it, and journalists read it, and people just assume it's true. So it's like, no, we're gonna correct. I read every tweet about Square um, every day, and so I respond to some if I felt they were incorrect. Um, but anyway. I took on the, the bigger fools there in this PC of trying to correct everything on the internet that's wrong. <laughs> it's like, like talking about being insane. Um, there's so many, so many wrong things. <laughs> that was like just a crazy idea. So I think I'm going to stop like trying to correct everything that's wrong on the internet. It might, I might sleep better at night. That's why uh, I mentioned over the weekend, I'm going to start publishing more on Substack. Yeah. Trying some long form stuff just to, uh, sort of, uh, focus my energies on something, you know, more positive perhaps and, um, not try to correct every fool on the internet. There's like a lot of fools on the internet. So it's like, it's like chasing, you know, you'd be, it's like one of those, uh, what do you call those things with the mouse ones in the treadmill? I feel like I'm doing that way too long. So I probably should stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, um, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the comic. The are you coming to bed comic? And he's like, I can't. This is important because someone's wrong on the internet. I gotta, I gotta correct that. <laughs> That's like my life. <laughs> For the last seven years, so I, I think I'm sick of running off the treadmill. I gotta run out of real treadmills. Yeah, well, I, I, I appreciate it if it's for health reasons, but know that it's uh, it's thoroughly appreciated. Someone's got to correct people. Someone's got to do the dirty work. So maybe someone, uh, someone else. I'll, will, I'll leave it to Delhi. I'll leave Delhi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm not correcting everybody on the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I mean, it is interesting just to talk about like PR strategy for a second because it, your, you know, uh, colleague and long, long time coworker and friend, uh, Peter Thiel doesn't correct anything about him on the internet. And there's all these sort of, you know, dumb sort of, you know, accusations and just interesting as a counter. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. Um, I think Peter, well, yeah, he did, he just basically shuts down the, uh, <laughs> the organizations that publish the defamatory stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's probably a more effective strategy than mine, truthfully. But uh, um, it works for him pretty well. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd recommend that for everybody. Um, yeah. But uh, in, in any event, yeah, I mean, I think at some level, high profile though, like think like someone like Elon, you can't control everything people are going to write or say about you. Um, you know, and so Elon's Elon, and he's going to have his fans and he's accomplishing an incredible amount both for his companies for society he's obviously going to have these critics most of the critics are going to be wrong or certainly not as informed or successful as him but he he can't stop all of it and i think like at some level of professional success that's going to be true so i think peter has probably acknowledged that and just you know insulated himself from caring yeah well, it's why some people can be politicians and other people can't. If you go into politics, you're clearly going to be frustrated by what your opponent says about you, what the media writes about you. And if that becomes psychologically damaging to you, I think it's very difficult to engage in politics as an elected official. And But some people, you know, either relish it or certainly can tolerate it. And so it depends on the person a lot, you know, their, their own psychographics. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine relishing it. That that'd be something. I, I think I'd just become numb. I to think it. certain people do relish it. We're in politics, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> not without naming names. There's yeah. really <laughs> without getting into the election. Uh, yeah, segueing it to sort of just broader, sort of like investment trends, or or, or maybe even like more specifically, are there any platform shifts you're you're particularly uh, excited about, or, or or watching out for, or, or sort of monitoring to see if it'll if it'll take off, or, or seeing it as it takes off. Not directly, as I said, you know, I'm not a big macro thinker. Um, I'm more of an opportunistic, you know, this specific founder has a reasonable shot of changing the world and I'm kind of going to join along for the ride and see if I can be helpful. Um, versus like, I have some big hypothesis that the world is shifting this way and we need to draw and jump on it. Once in a while, um, obviously with Open Door, you know, I had this spark of an idea in 2003 about the world could be transformed in a very specific way. And then it was very feasible to do so. Similarly, I spent two years trying to find a homeschooling company, you know, publicly talked about it, publicly posted on Twitter about it, because um, I felt like there was room for a lot of innovation there and be super successful. It's way before, obviously, COVID. Um, so once in a while, I have a spark, um, but that's not what I sit around trying to do is protect the future. I suppose yeah. to like, try to find the most interesting people I can. So no, the one I do believe though, I will say on the distributed content side of the Substack to OnlyFans, and there's a spectrum there, that those are real trends. Those are not like one-off companies, that there's gonna be a, a macro fragmentation of content and paid content um, along the lines we're seeing with just those two companies. Yeah. And so, what it, what it look like? It looks like OnlyFans for X, or what does it look like? Well, I don't know. I mean, if I knew, I would start it or whatever. But uh, I think the decentralization of content and that yeah. people are people both are follow and consume very long style content and pay for it, and then that trumps the consumption of mainstream content or one large media, whether it's you know a large board producer in the OnlyFans case or a large publisher in the, you know, some stuff case. But I think they're all forms of professional content. I think are going to move to a distributed production where the economics flow directly to the creator. The high, there are forms of content where the production costs and skill in producing is so high. That, that that may you know insulate it, but that was the that was always the critique of YouTube that no one would watch short form videos because you know you needed the fancy Hollywood studios to produce video content people would watch. This obviously wasn't true. You know, TikTok took that to another whole level. 
So I, th I think that you can actually scale down content, almost all kinds of content production, where at least the top 1% of the distributed world is producing content that people will subscribe to. But many people, let me put a fine point on this, there are, without naming names, um, people who would never, never pay for a porn subscription in a classic sense, they definitely are signing up for OnlyFans. Yep. Because they're following a specific person. And, the, you know, you just look at the metrics, like public metrics were like right after COVID hit, there was 200,000 new people signing up for paid subscription on OnlyFans every day for a while. Yeah. What about your, uh, your member? You were exploring goals. Um, yes. Feedback loops. Do you think that idea might, um, you might well, pursue it? Yeah, still, yeah, still, I mean, it took me 10 years to get open door found. Yeah. So I'm only three years in on the bulls up, so we've got plenty right. of years to go. Um, if I cut it in half, so let's say five years is a realistic target, um, that'd be progress. Um, yeah. Hopefully that'll be at least as successful. It should actually be more successful than open door. And in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's actually harder. Um, but the basic idea is that, uh, for those of you who haven't heard this before, is that there should be an app that's basically like a GPS system for your life. So if you have any goal, professional, personal, Whatever. So I want to be a VP engineer. I want to double my salary. I want to get married. I want to look like a men's health model. I want to live five years longer. This app just tells you what to do. And if you follow it, incredibly can put you on a trajectory that has a high likelihood of success. And there's key common elements to each of those goals. And it basically assesses where you are versus um, the destination and gives you a plan and a program. And without thinking, you just follow this. There's, there's been like narrow vertical versions of this. You can think of future fit, you know, as an example of a very small, narrow version. But this is very different. This is probably like I want to live five years longer, or this is this is exactly what I want to look like, or I want to date hotter people. It can be fairly vague. But so I've thought through many of the more difficult challenges in doing this horizontally and broadly, but I still need the right CEO. I think this is very specific. Uh, Getting this off the ground with the right credibility and the right breath requires a, a very specific uh, set of skills for the CEO. And so I know at least one CEO that I would definitely want to do this with, like anybody else who has real talent, they have lots of options in their life. Sometimes they freeze too much thinking about it. You should see the number of people I tried to pitch on being CEO of Opendoor. <laughs> like the list is very long. Uh, many people probably should have done it. You know, like it, it, it all these ideas are very controversial and seem insane until they, until they work and everybody's like, oh, well, of course. So I think the goals app will be successful. Um, if you look at a bookstore or book sales, the how-to section, you know, advice, feedback, is always the best-selling section. The problem is books are written for everybody in the middle of the bell curve, so they're not calibrated to you. There's a huge search cost to figure out which book to buy or read or what chapter um, what's credible, what's not. And this company should solve all that. Software is designed for compressing the feedback loop and customizing and personalizing. So this should actually be sort of a no-brainer. It's also universal. Yeah. The investing and incubating path, is that a path that you would recommend more sort of like excellent operators, you know, who also like investing consider? Or do you think it's even for, you know, your protégés, uh, J.D. Ross is, 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 in, is in the building? Do you think it's it's unlikely? Uh, like, not, not you know, don't try this at home or something. No. Um, so, you know, Delian's working on one right now. Um, he's going to try one. We've had success at Founders Fund. Trey, my partner Trey, co-founded Andrew which has done phenomenally well. Uh, so, there's lots of people. You know, Josh at Thrive has a success with Oscar, etc. So, there's a lot of examples of success. I think the key is to recognize one. The time frame it's severe. Number two, what is your unique contribution that continues? So, in a capital intensive business, actually, it's pretty easy for a VC to add value. Open door constantly needed both debt and equity. So, me being at the you know bleeding edge of raising money can be very useful to the company over years, like because the company always constantly needs to finance itself. But imagine like a social photo sharing something, something, something. Once I'm the founder and once I set this off the ground with a core team, how do I continue to add value? And I think if you have equity as a founder, you don't continue to add value regardless of whether your full-time job is a VC or not, there's going to be some frustration there. 
So I think it's not accidental that Oscar has a very capital-intensive business. Opendoor has a very capital-intensive business. Um, I think those are better for VCs than where you can't see a continuing uh, point of leverage for yourself as a VC. There, but but there are ways there are ways to solve that too. But I, I would just factor that in as one more subtle ingredient. You know, Mike Spicer has been phenomenally successful in incubating. I think part of the role of incubating that a VC can be very proficient at and is scalable is matchmaking, assembling a core team. So, you know, in Open Door, uh, we did, we had four, basically three, I three co-founders, including GD. None of the others basically knew each other. So Eric is CEO, never had met JD before. I sort of introduced them. Eric nor JD, I don't think, knew Ian. You know, and I happen to have a data scientist in my back pocket, uh, which we really needed, that was ready to go. And so matchmaking is something that VC does all the time. We do this with our executive teams across the portfolio anyway. You know, company X needs a VP of talent, company Y needs a CFO, company C needs a general counsel. We're involved in sourcing, assessing, interviewing, and closing all day. So this is this, this assembling the core team or complex business can be a very significant value creation step. For, for a VC. I think yeah. the key is though that you have something you care a lot about because it does take an irrational amount of time for the first call one to three years. And like if you try to justify it on a pure short-term ROI basis, you would talk yourself out of doing it. When it works, it's great though because you have proprietary deal flow. So you think about the reason why I did it was not because I was so, such a fancy thinker of like I'm going to create proprietary deal flow and blah, blah, blah. The reason why I did it was I really wanted to get this off the ground. And as I was debating whether I should finally become a VC after 13 years, I kind of concluded that I probably should or I would never really get around to doing it, but that I'd gone far enough down this path towards what we used to call home run that I needed to figure out a way to do it anyway. Fortunately, you know, I was working with Benoit Kosla, who's very supportive of this kind of investing strategy. So I felt like I could have, sort of do the proverbial of how my cake could eat it too. Um, and so it was more that I felt that I wanted to do both and not compromise. And this was a path that made sense for me. Now, as I think about doing it again, it's more, I, do I have an idea that I really want to propel into the future? And that B, it is a way of creating proprietary yield flow, which is a little bit more strategic as a VC. Yeah. My, my last question is from the audience, then we'll get you out of here. If, if you did a bet, You've done a homeschool company, but if you did another bet in sort of education, broadly defined in the next like two years, what 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 might it look like? Like what is potentially exciting to you within that space formally or even like in adjacent? Yeah. So, I mean, education is interesting. I think, you know, the clear Keith criteria would be would not be selling anything to pre-existing institutions. I never want to do that. You know, my whole investment strategy, even though I pin tweet, but it's basically vertically integrated companies that completely replace something else. And so what I'd want to do is probably replace, you know, higher education. Um, if you think about the, the opportunity right now, I mean, I've always been somewhat interested in this. I mean, you can say I'm guilty by association with fancy degrees from Stanford and Harvard, but <laughs> fundamentally that's also the reason why I realized that, you know, a huge fraction of the value, let's say, is the credential, not the actual learning. Um, and the cost is, you know, incredibly exorbitant. So, but one virtue of COVID is, it's not going to be practical for universities to operate in the kind of default mode that they have been for, you know, a century. And the economics are so starkly unaligned with the value creation, especially in a Zoom-based education world, that a lot of parents don't feel like they're taking risks with their children's future by trying alternatives. I mean, Peter, speaking of Peter, Peter's brilliance, over a decade ago, he realized the, the, the ridiculous nature of this, the student debt, um, you know, that we were basically piling on people and the lack of ROI there. So one of the reasons why he started the Teal Fellowship was to point that out and highlight it and magnify the difference. But um, I think now that's no longer a contrarian view. It's very consensus that this debt makes no sense. Yes, you could justify $60,000 for the Harvard credential, but it's irrational to have video-based education for $60,000 a year. And there must be both a more economically efficient model for educating people, but probably credentialing people and certainly better from an ROI standpoint. Yeah. And do you have a hunch for uh, what, what, what it'll look like? Like, will it look like Minerva? Will it look like something like totally different that we, you know, totally online that we haven't seen before? 
Do you have other hunts? Uh, truth that I wish I knew. Um, I, I, I really do believe that if I knew it, I would start it. I think the core ingredients, though, are the signaling. I would start, most people, especially in Silicon Valley, start with the utilitarian function of learning. And I would start the opposite way, which is the signaling and the credentialism. Because that's what people are truly paying for. Um, they may not admit it. It's a little bit like buying a Porsche. You don't admit the reason why you purchased a Porsche. So I think that's what drives people crazy and, and misleads them. Or I would show, I would compress the feedback loop on the learning to show that I can create roughly a proverbial order of magnitude improvement in learning so that there's no doubt that I've innovated on the learning side. It can't even be a debate or there's no way to cut through the clutter. So I've designed from first principles to either be an order of magnitude improvement on learning and I can back that up very quickly. Or it has the equivalent signal, signal, positive signaling, and I know how to create that brand hello right away and then fill in the blanks around those things. Totally. But I would find either of those two in the hands of a good entrepreneur. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we, we hope that's, uh, that's on deck. <laughs> um, to, to, to be continued. Um, guys, this was, uh, this, this was really great. Keith, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with all of us. Uh, virtual round of applause for, for, for Keith. Uh, Keith, thank you for thank you, thank you for joining. Pleasure to be with you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.